G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. The author of a book called The Information Paradox is joining us. Dr. Robert Wiles, a rural doctor living in the Snowy Mountains region of southern New South Wales. Well, he's been a Christian believer for over 25 years. He is senior lecturer in the Rural Clinical School Faculty of Medicine at the Australian National University. Well, he began researching information when his eldest child started learning biology at high school. And after eight years of research... A book has come to the fore. He has published The Information Paradox. Now, you might be familiar with this topic, but it's unlikely that many of us have a lot of detail about understanding information, especially the way that has been formulated by Dr. Robert Wiles, and that's what we're going to talk about this hour. If you are a person who enjoys following the creation versus evolution debate, you might like to contribute to our conversation. Again today, it's one of those uh, no-holds-barred. If you have a question when it comes to uh, the sorts of things we'll talk about when it uh, relates to information, uh, God as creator, uh, you're uh, welcome to call us. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's introduce our guest, Dr. Robert Wiles. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Hello. How are you, Neil? I'm very well, Robert, and uh, just a privilege to be able to talk to you today and to hear something of the journey that you have been on to get to a point where you've been able to publish your book, The Information Paradox. Uh, Let's start at square one, because we'll need to build on some things here so that our listeners uh, understand where you're coming from with uh, the information paradox, the things that you're talking about in your book. Tell me why you started getting into this particular field. Um, yes, it's a very long story. I, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, and um, I uh, was taught Darwinian evolution at school, and I accepted that when I went to medicine. It's the standard paradigm. And then I became a Christian after meeting my wife, and um, I then, uh, when our children got to teenage years, one of the things about teenagers is they're very good at spotting hypocrisy. And um, I realized uh, when I became a Christian that uh, to believe in Darwinian evolution and the Genesis account, they're mutually contradictory. And um, a lot of people have tried to have theistic evolution where they, uh, they weave the two together, but I don't believe that that's possible. And uh, I had to work out how I would answer my children when they would ask me. And uh, I st- when our eldest started in uh, high school and uh, studying biology, I knew the question would come up and I, I started uh, praying that God would show me how do I answer this. And uh, he gave me a picture of a stake in the ground and I describe it in the book. Um, a, 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 um, a crampon ha- hammered into a rock. Uh, you can put a, a line on it and lots of people can then tie lines to climb up a, a very steep cliff. And that's the picture I had where we agree to one point 
and then we argue from that. And the point that God, I believe God gave me was information. And I think everyone, we live in the information age. And uh, so we, my children learn information science at school. It's mandatory. Um, and every advanced culture in the world um, realises that it's necessary for their citizens to understand about information. So arguing from information was where I started. Now, let's get a little bit of uh, definition here to what we talk about when we're discussing information. How do you define that uh, in the way that we can all understand? Uh, Because obviously it's very complex. Yes, it's complex and yet it's very simple. Um, And that's the profound thing about it. The the information paradox, I went through about 10 titles um, and this one stood out because there's so many uh, paradoxes with information. the, the thing about information, and I, I had to go back and rewrite the book a couple of times, that's part of the reason why it took so long, was I'd get an idea and then I realised and I came to a conclusion that I never dreamt of. So then I have to go back to the start and argue it from the new point of view again. And information has no mass. If you, um, if you pick up the, the ideas that are information, you cannot hold them in your hand. They're recorded in, in things. If we want to record them, we have to have a material entity to record them in, like a book, or um, it has to be in a sound wave, or it has to be on a, um, you know, uh, printed on, uh, it can be etched into rock, um, like uh, hieroglyphics in uh, ancient Egypt. Um, but the information itself can be transferred from one into the other. So you can actually transfer something. Um, I can read you from the book and it can go across the sound waves. It's still the same information, but the medium or the entity that carries it, I can talk about carriers. So the carriers in our world, because we live in a materialistic world um, where material entities carry things, but they're not the information itself. And we have to distinguish between the information that has no matter and has no mass and has no physical dimensions, and the carriers which do. I like one way that you do describe uh, the way we talk about information too, when you talk about the hardware and the software that make up our computer. Uh, Is that another way to describe the sorts of things that you're communicating in your book? Yes, well, the computer's a really good analogy to help you understand. Um, when I, I first realised this when I bought my first computer, and I bought the computer, and I paid a lot of money in 1983 for it, and uh, suddenly, uh, after I was about to walk out, the salesman said, oh, and you'll be wanting some software, won't you? And I said, what software? And he said, well, it makes the computer run, and then I, he charged me another 500 and something dollars on top of the, the hardware to make the computer useful. And I suddenly realised... The hardware is something, but it's useless without the software, and the software is the information. And then when I was writing the book, I suddenly realized, well, you can have hardware, and then there's actually layers of software. There's a machine language. There's actually an operating platform, and then there's a a thing like a a word processing platform, and then you then put more information in on top of that. So there's layer upon layer of information, and this is the way I believe God's built the universe. This is what I wanted to ask you about, particularly as we introduce this subject today, because when we talk about the software that drives the hardware, uh, this is the area that we really, you know, will want to argue or we want to uh, hear something that's going to convince us of one way or the other. Is it God who provides the software or did the software somehow or other appear uh, on its own? The um, Well, this is, this is really contentious um, for... Uh, materialistic uh, scientists. Um, 
people like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne would say there is nothing other than our materialistic world. But I would, I would point out that information is non-materialist. So if you accept we live in the information world or the information age, then by definition we live in a world that is not just material. And um, we, that we encounter a whole lot of things in the world we can't explain. A lot of things aren't explained to the general public, but we don't actually know what thought is. We don't know what memory is. We don't know where it is. We can't find it. Um, we know it exists. Um, you can demonstrate that it makes useful outcomes for human beings. Um, and, uh, but without thought and memory, and then there's consciousness and then there's self-consciousness. All of these are non-material entities. And the, the neuroscientists have been trying to work out a material basis for it, and they've come to nothing after decades of research. So, um, whereas if you have what I call the compound model, where human beings are not just a material entity, we have a material carrier, which is our physical body, that's specified by our DNA. And so I would take the whole of Richard Dawkins' material world, and I would say he's left half of it off, the half that makes us human, and that's our, our being or our spirit. And I would, in the book, I distinguish between um, life and consciousness and self-consciousness. Your dog or cat or horse is conscious, but they don't have self-consciousness. Human beings alone have self-consciousness, even chimpanzees. I've got a lovely quote from um, the professor of anthropology at Oxford who demonstrates the difference between consciousness and self-consciousness. Um, and um, uh, that's, um, he explains it really nicely. It's what makes our conversation today especially interesting because we are talking about things that uh, others, and as you talk about material atheists, uh, very, very difficult for them to talk about these sorts of things. But in our Christian worldview, in our understanding that comes from knowing God and appreciating the Bible and the book of Genesis, uh, we have a worldview that actually does encompass all of this information. Yes, yes, and that's that's the interesting thing, the um, that's, that's how I came at um, a whole lot of the things I started with just the first cell and I realised by looking at information that there was information in the cell and um, one thing that we know is that meaningful information can't write itself um, you, can, um, you can suggest that um, uh, random variation with natural selection which is Darwin's theory uh, created the genes and everything but the information that is on the genes um, has, is it's meaningful and meaningful information if you uh, I liken it to when I was writing my homework um, if I didn't do my homework the night before when I woke up in the morning it wasn't sitting on my desk finished um, I still had to write it and I had to use some some um, some brain power to actually work out something useful that the teacher would give me a mark for that wasn't wasn't fail and um, uh, in the first cell, there's a lot of meaningful information. Um, similarly, in the universe, there's a lot of meaningful information. And if you doubt that, the laws of the universe, which uh, cosmologists don't actually know what constitutes the laws of the universe, they just know they exist, um, those are full of information. Well, that meaningful information, um, like um, Newton's laws, um, they, they just didn't come by random out of nowhere. Uh, most cosmologists would accept that, um, so that meaningful information had to get written. And as far as we know, it existed at the formation of the universe. So 
um, before the formation of the universe or at the um, precise beginning, those laws of the universe had to be written that actually make up what we call the fabric of the universe. So although we think of the universe as void, there is actually something out there, and I, we probably don't have time to go into that today, but I do go into it in the book, um, that um, there is a fabric that underlies our universe, and that's specified by information. So the information must have been written before the formation of the universe, just like the first cell. We are talking through all sorts of issues you don't ordinarily get to hear conversation about. We're going to be talking some more about DNA, about cells. We're going to be talking about even deeper issues of time and space and the universe. You might like to be a contributor to our conversation today. You might have a question, a burning question you've always wanted to ask on these types of issues. Talking about information today, you can do our talkback line open on one 800 316 316. Let's take our first caller for the hour. Uh, Robert is in Slacks Creek in Queensland. Hello, Robert. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Robert, what's your contribution to our conversation today? Oh, well, it's just um, science uh, keeps thinking it can talk about history um, and get information and impart information to history, but science actually can't do that at all. And we, we keep on attributing to science the ability to decipher what happened in the past when actually science by definition cannot do that. So, so our whole society is on a lie believing that science can help us know what happened in the past when science by definition which is repeatable uh, repeatable experiments can not actually know anything about history. Robert Wiles, your thoughts on what Robert from Slacks Creek in Queensland is saying? Yes, I, I would I would agree with that. I, I I like to refer to it as a tool, and I like to in the book I call it scientific method. Um, science is actually a method of doing things, and um, uh, we need to distinguish between philosophy and science. Philosophy is where you um, have uh, rigor and logic, and you can uh, deduce facts but not necessarily test them experimentally which means is repeat them we can't repeat the formation of the universe we can't repeat the formation of the first cell so they're defined by philosophy by um, by, de- by definition that that's philosophy um, science um, is where you have uh, rationality rigor and logic and you can test it repeatedly. So if I say something, someone else can come along and repeat the same experiment, and independently they can say, yes, I agree, or no, I disagree, because of these reasons. And so science is a method for doing things. It isn't an answer in itself. Dr. Robert Wiles, our guest, a medical doctor who's applied his learning to understanding the universe. His book is called The Information Paradox. We're talking about information today. Uh, uh, Robert, when we talk about this uh, information, uh, this gap that we have, or is it a perceived gap between science and Christianity? If you use uh, information to discuss these things, does it bridge the gap between science and Christianity? Well, I think it does. Um, I actually believe that the universe is utterly logical, um, the, and it's precise. Um, the laws of the universe are written in mathematics. Um, the, um, 
uh, Newton's laws of motion are actually best written in um, mathematical formulae. You can write them in English, but it's not as precise as if you write them in mathematics. And um, actually having looked at this for uh, a, a number of years, I actually believe that the whole universe is written in the language of mathematics. And, and I, I like to say that um, mathematics is the language of God, which actually disturbs me because I'm not a mathematician. Um, but for people like John Lennox, who is a mathematician, I'm sure it makes even more sense to him. Um, but um, did, uh, mathematics is precise and um, we live in a digital universe. Um, DNA is a digital code. Um, and everywhere you look in the universe, um, uh, you can reduce things to um, digital entities. Where we can't, I would suggest we're probably not on track and we actually need to look further to get the, 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 a real understanding of whatever we're trying to study. Tell me a little about DNA because, uh, you know, discovery of DNA and, and uh, the mathematical ways that DNA is made up introduced the whole world to a whole new era of thinking about uh, information. What sort of information should we appreciate given that, uh, that we've been able to map the human genome and that we can understand these different scientific uh, issues, DNA and cells? Does this sort of open up a, a door that, that we were probably waiting for that actually leads us to a deeper understanding of who we are and that there may be a God in heaven? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the discovery by Watson and Crick in 1953 of the structure of DNA um, what started the, the modern era of biology or, or um, uh, genetics, and um, that showed the, the, the uh, complexity of the DNA molecule, but yet it's built up from only four bases, from, from four little um, letters in the, in the DNA alphabet, you can... Um, specify the whole of life on earth and uh, that's profound um, there's the information that's actually in the carrier because the dna is specified by information but actually it's only a series of chemicals um, the true information is actually the order in which those letters within the dna are sequenced so the order you put them in matters and um, that's where the information is and that's where as I say, the information had to be written to actually form the first cell. We now realise that um, I, I know more about human beings, um, having studied medicine, but uh, you know, human beings have over three billion of these single letters or base pairs, we call them, and three billion is a very large number. Um, now, a lot of them were thought to be um, uh, the leftovers of... of um, mistakes in Darwinian evolution, they now realise that um, as a result of the, the Human Genome Project in 2000, um, that most of the base pairs, well over 80%, maybe over 90%, are actually transcribed. And they now think that um, although 3% um, are roughly uh, specify our physical body, that's the material carrier, which is uh, a human being, the other um, 90 plus percent seems to be the instruction manual that says how to arrange them. And the most profound thing about um, when, when we go back to computers, I love the analogy between computers and, and information. If you have a computer, <clears throat> there's information in it, but um, the information in the computer doesn't tell the computer how to form itself from nothing. Um, 
But in a human being, we start with one cell, and that one cell has all the information to unfold a human being with, with several trillion, um, maybe even as much as 70 trillion cells, um, which is truly huge numbers, and there's many different cell types. There's, we now realize there's a thing called the epigenome, um, and the epigenome, the genome is the list of all the base pairs that specify the human being. The epigenome tells that, that physical um, uh, that, that physical sequence, what to do and how to do it. And the, um, they often talk about um, we're only 2% or 3% different from chimpanzees. And um, from an information point of view, in a materialist sense, that's, that might be true. And if you look at all the houses in Australia, um, the number of materials used to make all the different houses, there's only certain things you can build a house out of. And so you can probably say that 90 plus percent of all the houses in Australia are, are the same, but they all look different or me most of them look different. And that's because the instructions that the um, architect or the builder used to rearrange those is different. And um, I haven't seen um, the comparison between an epigenome for a human being and a gorilla yet. Um, I haven't seen that published, and I'm not even sure they've actually sequenced it. But um, there's this layer upon layer of information, and the most important thing seems to be the epigenome, although the genome is vitally important too. Let's take another call from Rosemary in Melbourne. Hello, Rosemary. Rosemary, are you with yes, us? Yes, hello. Yes, I'm here. Rosemary, what's your contribution to our conversation today? I was just thinking as I was listening uh, since the beginning of the topic, I studied a biology of uh, plants back in 1967 and biology of human beings in 1968, back in my matriculation year many years ago at high school. Uh, just listening to what you were just saying while I'm on the phone, uh, because God made every one of us a spiritual being, even more so than our physical body or our intellect, doesn't matter how much information we discover more and more and more about the beginning of the universe and the beginning of and the beginning of how we were created. Uh, we'll never understand who God is unless we understand spiritually with our soul and with our spirit. Uh, let's and, hear from Robert on that because this is what we are saying, isn't it, Robert? Because uh, when you talk about spirit and soul, these are things that can be explained by talking about information, but not in any other way. Yes, um, I, this is this is very important to me. Um, the I talk about consciousness because that's something that we can describe in science and is described, but um, um, and self-consciousness and um, um, that I can use the terms um, soul and spirit, or I define them in the book as that um, a a a dog or a cat has consciousness, but not self-consciousness and. Um, I would um, suggest that human beings have a spirit um, which can commune with God, um, and that equates to a self-consciousness. We know that we know, uh, whereas I don't believe a dog knows that it knows, um, and that's the um, most atheist scientists would agree that the, the dog does not have self-consciousness. Um, and there's a uh, Frank Tipler in the United States actually believes that um, all the conscious species um, um, have a soul and will be in heaven too, uh, except they don't have a spirit. 
there's a difference. And you can um, argue over the names given, but there are, there are different entities. It's Neil Johnson with you on 2020. And our special guest this hour, Dr. Robert Wiles, a medical doctor who's applied his learning to understanding the universe. In fact, energy, matter and time have been recognised as fundamental entities for nearly 100 years. But now a fourth entity, information, is being viewed as uh, a similar uh, entity as energy, matter and time. We're talking to Dr. Robert Wiles about these things. Robert, let me just ask you something very, very down to earth. Uh, we've been hearing some fabulous uh, things about information and the value that that has to us understanding very scientific things. Uh, let me just ask you where the rubber hits the road. What does it mean to me today if I listen to a conversation like this? How can I use what I understand about information today in the conversations that I'm going to have with people in my day-to-day life? What's the value of understanding this whole new realm of information in relation to God. Okay. Um, This comes back to worldviews, and um, it gives you, um, to me, it gives me a worldview which I can argue from. Um, I was discussing with my son before this this morning about um, the ethics of abortion and things like that, because that comes up in our society. And when does the soul enter the body and therefore when does a human being become a human being and all this sort of stuff the um the information and we we haven't got time to go into the argument but it is in the book um when when does um the soul because we were talking about the spirit before when does the spirit enter a new human being and how does it do it um and the information model gives um a fairly clear to me explanation of when that happens um, and um, to me that gives explanatory power um, it to me it uh, gives me a model of thought and memory and consciousness that is lacking from the medical models um, if you're if you're discussing it with someone who's not a Christian um, this is a very simple way to um, uh, to answer people you know if people uh, say that well um, Darwinian evolution created everything on earth the my question and I would suggest you ask questions to say where did the information come from to specify that that's the only question you've got to ask and if you're talking about the Big Bang and the creation of the universe you know well it just I love Chuck Missler's explanation in the beginning was nothing and then it exploded I mean that's just wonderful um, it's um, there was nothing as far as we know um, in the universe because the universe had to be created out of nothing um, and then there was something. So that something is specified by information and that information had to be written. It didn't just happen by accident. So the Big Bang, which was a... It was actually a, a, um, a satirical comment um, made in 1948 and it actually stuck. Um, so... Thinking that organization came out of an explosion is actually a contradiction in terms. But, however, I mean, the Bible says that the, the, the universe was unfolded like a tent. And that, that says something to me, that I can see God 
using his information and he spoke jesus spoke it into existence the bible says well i can see that the information is being rolled out or or unfolded or laid out and that makes sense to me um so um explanatory power and it's a so it's a very good apologetic um if someone wants to say well the information the, the universe just happened then they have to account for the information that's there and the best thing is um, the laws of the universe, we don't know where they came from. No one actually ever talks about them because they haven't got an explanation. So if you want to floor most um, cosmologists, just ask them the origin of the laws of the universe. Okay, most of us, when we... Well, it's, it's actually wonderful to be able to think of a, a simple question. Where did the information come from? Uh, when I think of that and what people might object to and uh, they might be describing what God is like as just a big ball of information. And uh, and I suppose that's one way to describe God. It doesn't actually lend personality, but there is a sense, isn't there, that the orderliness of the information in the way that the universe is ordered and that it fits with the Genesis account and that we are able to understand God as creator and as personality, that God being a big ball of information isn't a bad place to start if you're explaining him to people who don't believe. I would, um, rather than say that, um, I would I would sort of couch it in terms that God is the writer of the information. I don't this doesn't tell us who or what God is more than the Bible. The best description comes in the Bible. Um, but um, I, I think of God as the author of the information. And um, so information, as I say, needs an intelligence. So the creativity, the, the beauty, the, the variability of the universe is so immense. It takes an imagination, and that, that's a consciousness or a, self -con or a consciousness is needed to do that. So if it's just pure information like a library, you can't imagine a library actually creating anything new. So we actually have to have a, a conscious being to actually do that. And I know there'd be objections to me linking the God of the Bible to the God of being the creator, because uh, oftentimes this is a, a point of difference that people have when they're discussing, because they say if they get to a point where they, they do actually acknowledge that there is a creator, because that's uh, almost not arguable these days because of the sorts of information that we're talking about today, but actually arguing that the God of the Bible is the creator. And of course, that comes back to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, what are your thoughts when it comes to identifying who the creator is. Um, well, I don't think that information can tell you that. Um, I have to go to the Bible to, to find that. Um, arguing from first principles, which is that looking at the universe, I can see there's information there, otherwise there wouldn't be an entity to look at um, or study um, or experiment with. Um, it, it tells me that there is information and I can deduce an enormous amount from that because of the characteristics of information, but it doesn't tell me who the author is. It's like looking at the computer again. When you look at your computer, you can deduce an enormous amount from it, but you can't tell who wrote the software or who designed the architecture of the, the physical case that it's in. So we do need to come back to the Bible and to... But the interesting thing is aligning what we read in the Bible because what we're reading in the Bible is 
uh, miracles. And, of course, when we do get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, that was a miracle too. And if we're talking about an orderliness of information, uh, when we see miracles happen, uh, when we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these are a ordering of the information in such a way as God has done that. Is that, is that a way to, to think about the way that God might intervene in, uh, in the uh, information that is uh, running everything? Yes, I like um, the way Lennox um, refers to C.S. Lewis, who wrote on this in, in his book on miracles. The, um, you have to have an orderliness or a set of laws for a miracle to occur. If you don't have an expectation that something will happen, well, then you can't determine that a miracle happened. So if we know that water runs downhill under certain circumstances, if you find a creek that flows directly up the hill against gravity, well, then you know that contravenes the the law of gravity. And so something has broken the natural law that is part of our universe. So then you might call that a miracle because unless you've got a pump, um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, So the orderliness of information in our universe sets a platform or a background against which we can recognize a miracle. And so we know that human beings don't usually come to life after they die. Um, So for someone to do that, it must be a miracle. And for the creator of the universe, I don't see any any problem that that he could um, rearrange a few things to to make that happen. I don't know how he did it, but um, I believe the Bible when it says that it happened. Robert, it's probably a, a, a huge uh, response, but if I ask you about you know, lots of different theories that physicists come up with and the studies into things like quantum mechanics and uh, dual theories of light, those sorts of theories that people are coming up with to explain the way things are, what does your information paradox uh, contribute to people who are studying these areas of physics? Oh, well, that's, that's the great fun. Um, when I was at school, um, we studied the dual theory of light and in physics. And uh, uh, to, to summarise it really quickly for non-physicists, light can be proven, and this is in a, in a scientific experiment, you can prove that light um, is a lot of little particles that are, um, have mass. They, they have, um, and they behave like little balls, um, like ball bearings, um, you can also, in a different experiment, prove that light uh, behaves like a wave and has no mass at all. And you can prove that it's the same light. So light can be proven to both have mass and not have mass simultaneously. And that is true. It's proven to be true. And I, and I looked at my physics teacher and said, come on. Um, and he said, look, I can't explain it either. Just accept it. And I, as a teenager, I, I said, all right, I will write it in the exam, but I can't accept it. The thing that um, surprised me, um, because I started out on biology, not looking at physics or chemistry and other things, um, but if, if we live in a, what I call a compound universe, which is both material and non-material, well, then you can explain the dual theory of light in that there are, appear to be multiple dimensions. And um, we live in the first four dimensions, which Einstein described, which is height, length, width, and time. Um, but there, there are obviously some other dimensions, um, and um, I, I suspect, because I can't prove it, I can't go there, that um, everything in the universe has extra-dimensional uh, existence. 
and um, that would be a good place to put the information. I can't, I can't prove that. Um, if that's the case, then light is not just a physical entity, but it has, like human beings, a non-physical side to it as well. And that, that gives, um, and we won't go into it, um, but you can read it in the book, um, it gives an explanation for the dual theory of light. Um, it, one thing that I tested, I, um, when I got to the end of the book, I thought, what's the hardest thing I can think of to test the theory? There's a thing called Schrodinger's cat, and um, it's, a, it's a conundrum that um, Schrodinger was a, a, a physicist in the 1930s, and, and um, uh, this, is a, um, this is a theory that's proven to be true um, in quantum mechanics, um, and, um, but there's a number of explanations. Um, the, the, the reigning explanation says, and it's, um, it's espoused by Niels Bohr, who's another quantum, uh, quantum physicist and the Nobel laureate, um, he says that nothing can be proven to be true unless you look at it. Einstein's response was, I like to believe that the moon is there even when I'm not looking. And um, I like Einstein's response. So um, the um, one thing that uh, Schrodinger said, well, if I put a cat in a box and I have a, 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 a radioactive clock on it um, that won't tell me when it's going to go off and it sets, uh, I put some cyanide in there that, this is not for cat lovers, I'm afraid, um, <laughs> the, um, if, if the, the switch goes off, um, when I don't know because it's a radioactive uh, switch um, and I close up the box and the cat's in there, is the cat dead or alive? And um, that's called um, Schrodinger's cat. And actually, the, I won't tell you the answer. You'll have to read Chapter 12. But um, there's even an answer to that, that conundrum. So um, it, this is what I call explanatory power that uh, is actually re really revelational to me. <laughs> I thought it'd be a complicated uh, answer to that question about uh, quantum mechanics. 2020 on Vision. Neil Johnson with you. On 2020, we are talking about the information paradox. Our special guest, Dr. Robert Wiles, is the author of this new book, a medical doctor who's applied his learning to understanding the universe. Uh, let me take you back, Robert, to uh, when your son started to study biology at school and you began to apply uh, your understanding to help him negotiate the sorts of things that he was about to learn in high school. Uh, the application of your book comes to not only just those teenagers going to high school, but also people who begin to move into tertiary studies of science and I guess are quite vulnerable when they're exposed to so many scientific things. How does your study in the information paradox help people to maintain a healthy understanding of God and the scriptures uh, as they move into their studies. Yeah, see, this is, um, this is a great strength of the book, is that um, the Christian Medical and Dental Fellowship of Australia estimates that 80% of Christian students who enter uh, scientific studies at university lose their faith by the time they graduate. And 80% is huge. Um, and the... A lot of the reason is Darwinian evolution, but the physics and chemistry and everything else um, doesn't help. And uh, if we can give credible explanations that our children can um, appreciate and take with them so that we prepare them before they go on to higher studies, then they have something to counter it with. 
um, I had a discussion with my son and um, through to form the very first lecture on biology was on Darwinian evolution and um, um, my son reported it as something to the effect that um, uh, hands up all the Christians we, we, we can remove this from you before you graduate and um, there's lots of other anecdotes from around the world and uh, a lot of lecturers um, believe that's their mission is to um, educate in inverted commas Christian students and um, I would love people to discuss with their children before they go on to high school studies but, but tertiary studies of any sort um, about um, how information can show that um, the, a lot of the explanations are shallow that are given and um, it doesn't stand up to um, the information. The one thing about digital information we didn't mention before is that uh, digital things, mathematics, can be audited just as the books on, in a company can be audited. And so when you deal with information, you can measure the information that goes in and you can measure the information that comes out. A lot of the explanations that are given, um, they... Uh, they sneak information in or they forget to put all the information in. And uh, if you do an audit, then you can show where there was sleight of hand in coming up to the conclusion. And um, I, I want the, our, our, our children, our future students, to be able to analyse things from an information, uh, in information terms so that they can see where they're not being given the full story or... Uh, extra information is being snuck in in a certain way that um, isn't um, isn't legal, if you like, in the terms of the experiment being discussed. And so, this is a way I can see of um, preparing our students for future study. Ordinarily, I don't talk about the makeup of books with authors, but good to draw attention to your book. It's a, a complex book. Uh, is it what you would call a textbook? It's not necessarily, and uh, this is my uh, opinion, it's not necessarily light bedtime reading. It's, it's really uh, quite a sophisticated uh, book. How do you describe your book, The Information Paradox? Yes, it's, um, uh, I've had a few people read it from cover to cover now, and um, the, the one thing that comes back is that it is he- heavy going for non-scientists. Um, and because of that, I'm working on a, uh, a, a concise version to, that will be easier to consume. The reason it's, it's very detailed is that it has to be able to stand up to the likes of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking. Um, it has to be so robust that um, every argument uh, is scientifically sound. And uh, um, uh, that's why I'm very keen to debate um, with anyone on any of the topics in it um, because I believe that it is robust. Um, the, um, so to talk about it as a, as a textbook would be appropriate, although there are no courses in this at the moment. And in fact, when I was looking for topics to um, register it under, um, you know, for a library, there is no particular category because this is a, a new way of dealing with information. Um, the, um, it's, it goes into a lot of detail, but the concepts, because information is so simple, information is an entity that specifies something. So the, the concepts are simple, but a lot of it is arranged in a way that no one's thought about before. 
And as I said, when I actually went through, I, uh, in fact, I got to the end of the book and suddenly realized that um, it specified an information model of the universe, which is something completely novel that I've never read anywhere else. And so then I had to go back right to the beginning and start all over again. And so when people read it, they're going to have to go through and they're going to have to think about it because it's going to challenge almost everything that anyone's learned before. But uh, hopefully they will find it logical and uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of references. There's over a 1,000 footnotes or side notes and um, um, 350 uh, references in the bibliography. So it's, there's a lot of, lot of information there, but it is an informa- a book on information. Robert, how do you approach talking about God, talking about the Bible, talking about uh, creation uh, through your book uh, when you're talking about these scientific issues? The, um, I've given a number of talks to um, youth group and um, to the men's camp and um, to Rotary and Probus and um, to the Labrie Society in England, and they're all very different. Um, so I, I pitch it where the people are at. The first thing um, in, in using information is that we need to know where people are already. And if we know where they are, then we can, um, we can come to them and meet them uh, on the level that they're at. And uh, that's the, the amazing thing about information. Um, I've had year nine students who've reported they can follow the talk, um, but um, then I've had PhD students from Oxford who were listening to the talk in England and they, they asked some very hard questions about quantum mechanics. Um, but um, by, by discussion, we can move forward. And um, so I think the very first thing is to talk to people um, in a sympathetic way and, and see what their beliefs are, see where they're at and see what they understand. And then from there, um, show them the information and then uh, explain to them some of the, as we've done this, 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 this talk, um, show them the characteristics of information and therefore what one would expect to see because of it. And then you can take people forward from there. Time running short, but if we're talking about a revolutionary new idea, is this the way you describe the thoughts that you've presented in your book? Um, yes, I, I think so. Um, there... I haven't seen them. There's only a couple of other books I've seen written purely on information and not quite from this perspective because um, this looks at um, how information is, the, as I say, the fundamental entity from which all the other entities in the universe are written. Um, and I, I haven't seen that expressed any other way. And, and that was the um, conclusion I had to come to by a- analysing all the data that, that, that came to me. Um, so, yes, this is a profoundly new way, as I can see, of, of um, looking at the universe, but it doesn't change anything that's there. Our material world is still the same. Um, so when we talk to materialists who say there isn't anything else, we say, yes, that's true, I agree, a gum tree is a gum tree, um, but it's specified by information, and, and then you take them along the information road um, and, and you can show all Robert, we'll need that. to uh, draw an end to our conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, ucbdirect.com.au to uh, access a copy and Christian bookstores. Robert Wiles, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. 
Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.